0: Hi there and welcome to episode 20. (laughs) I hope that you have had a very happy holiday or at the very least I hope that you had a mindful one (laughs) and learned some lessons. I know I heard from several people that said that they became highly aware of their holiday manuals this year. And guess what? Like just noticing that you have manuals as they come up, that is a sign of huge progress. So well done taking notice. And that tells me that you're on track for learning how to navigate those as they come to you. So awesome job. We had a cozy little holiday at my house. It was just me and my husband and my three kids. And it was very nice and very cozy. But I, too, noticed that I had some holiday manuals coming up. And it's very interesting to kind of notice the conflicting emotions that can come up. So, for example, I have two high schoolers that still live at home. And then my eldest, she lives about an hour away. And my two high schoolers wanted some sister time for the holiday. And so she came to pick them up and they spent several days at her apartment, which was super duper fun for them. And I'm so happy that they had that opportunity. And also it was interesting to notice me needing to uh, manage my own mind around those conflicting emotions of I'm so glad that they love each other. I'm so glad that they're getting this time together. And that is such a wonderful thing. And also kind of realizing that I also had the feelings of, you know, feeling a little bit lonely over the holidays with having my kids leave as soon as Christmas break started. But they all came back Christmas Eve evening and we had a wonderful time together. We played games and had delicious food. I really enjoy getting a new game for our family every Christmas. And this year, I think that hands down the favorite game that we got was ransom note. <laughs> it is a super fun game where you kind of get like a little prompt and then you have to use these random little magnet words to come up with your reply. So it kind of looks like a ransom note because you just have to use whatever words are available to you. Um anyway, it was a lot of fun. And it maybe got a tiny bit irreverent, but also that's part of the fun. <laughs> so we really enjoyed playing that game. I highly recommend it. It was super fun. Oh, I also wanted to share with you a little segment from a Christmas card that I received. So as I told you, I recently had a speaking engagement and so when I got this card in the mail, it totally made my day. But what they wrote was, may you experience more than 50% joy in the coming year. (laughs) And it just made me laugh and I loved that they were listening and paying attention and I just thought that was super cute. So that was probably one of my favorite cards. So for the next three episodes, I have decided to do a little series on the drama triangle. So for those of you that haven't heard of the drama triangle, it is a model of interaction that was first introduced by Stephen B Karpman and it is a model for destructive interaction that generally occurs in conflict. So I am sharing this because being aware of our natural tendencies like what our brain just naturally wants to do and becoming aware when we get sucked into these little dramas, you know, and are in this case sucked into the drama triangle, that is the first step towards getting out of the drama triangle. As we've been talking about in recent episodes, Recognizing and being honest about where you're at. So, just recognizing where the drama triangle is showing up for you, that is going to provide you with amazing information to help you to figure out a path to where it is that you would like to go. So, the three points of the drama triangle include the victim, the perpetrator, and the rescuer. And we'll be spending one episode on each of those points. Now, when I first learned about the drama triangle, I started seeing it everywhere. And I mean, everywhere. And frankly, I became a little overwhelmed by it because it was kind of interesting because then I recognized my part in in contributing to the drama triangle. And I kind of recognized that I found myself feeling victimized almost by the drama triangle. (laughs) So because I found myself feeling a little bit overwhelmed when I first learned about the drama (laughs) triangles, then I decided that in each episode, I'm not only going to be addressing the point in the drama triangle, but I'm also going to be addressing It's counterpoint as presented by David Emerald in his book, The Power of Ted, The Empowerment Dynamic. This is a short but very powerful read. And yes, I will have a link to this book in the show notes. Uh, But it's interesting just compare and contrast the empowerment dynamic with the drama triangle and take that first step into conscious living of recognizing, okay, what role am I taking on right now in the drama triangle? And then transforming that. Shadow aspect of ourself of the drama triangle into the light aspect of the empowerment dynamic. So, if you can kind of think about these two triangles as the light aspect and the shadow aspect, and choose to consciously and intentionally step into the light, it can be very helpful. So, to start, I have asked my husband and my daughter to assist me with a little narrative that kind of illustrates the three points of the drama triangle. So, thank you so much for being here, Jason and Kazaya. Great to be here. They're so excited. I can't even tell you. <laughs> oh, so as you listen to this little narrative, um, this is something that may have happened in your home. It's a pretty real example. Um, and you may notice that you've seen the drama triangle before. So it's the plot of nearly every movie. And more than likely, it plays out daily in your work, in your relationships, and in your home. OK, so here we go. I'm going to set the scene here. This is a, a mother and a father and their child having a little discussion. Why do you keep failing at math, persecutor? I don't know. I guess I'm just useless. Victim. Here, let me help you with that. Rescuer. I don't need your help. I'm not stupid. Just leave me alone. Persecutor. No need to get angry. I was just trying to help. Victim. I can't believe you failed another test. What is your teacher going to think about us as parents? Victim. This isn't about you, Dad. Just leave her alone. Persecutor. Maybe we do need to hire a tutor. Rescuer. Stop fighting, Mom and Dad. I'll get my grades back up. Rescuer. Thank you, you two. That was amazing those two are such good sports i really appreciate them coming on and helping out with that i just couldn't have done it with just my voice it would have been super confusing (laughs) so as you can see from this example we all take on all parts of the drama triangle at the same time and oftentimes that can even happen within the same conversation so i don't know if you noticed but each of us in that example we each took turns taking on the role of victim persecutor and rescuer and so it's just kind of interesting to notice how quickly we can swing between the two and how much they they contribute to each other. It's also interesting to note that when we are the victim, we are oftentimes also persecuting our persecutor, right? So it's, no, you're the villain. So now we just went from being the victim to also being a persecutor. And other times we may be showing up as the rescuer, but if our quote unquote help isn't received in the way that we would have liked, then we may become resentful and slide into persecutor like, oh, you're so ungrateful. Or maybe we also possibly slide into victimhood. Like, I just do so much for others and no one appreciates me. So you will start to see this drama triangle showing up everywhere that you go. (laughs) It's interesting to even see it showing up, you know, on TV. Like I said, it's on every plot, but it's also like on social media. So you may be seeing a argument happening online and the details of the debate may change, but essentially the argument is the exact same. So first it starts out with the persecutor. You can't do this thing you're doing. And then it turns into the victim of, this hurts me personally. And then it turns into the rescuer of, hey, I'm going to make sure that you don't hurt anybody else. I'm just raising some awareness here. And it's all the exact same story, but the details are just changing slightly. And it just goes around and around and around. So today we're going to focus on just one of these roles, the victim role. And in the next two episodes, then we'll cover the other two. So make sure that you're subscribed so that you can hear those when they come out. So some of the thoughts that you may notice when you're stuck in victimhood are, I can't believe this is happening to me. This kind of thing always happens to me. I should have known that this was going to happen. And you may also notice like a lot of complaints happening in your head, like it's either happening verbally, like you just are always telling people all the horrible things that are happening, or maybe it's just a voice inside of your head telling you about how hard life is all the time and it's just playing on a loop. Um, But those are things that may be coming up for you. So. It's essentially what kind of what we talked about in episode five on manuals. Like we're kind of in this emotional childhood where we're choosing to believe that other people are responsible for how we feel. And it's kind of just the ultimate woe is me card. So maybe when somebody asks you how you're doing, then you kind of just start rattling off all of the things that have happened to you. (laughs) Right. So, for example, maybe it's my dog peed on the floor. My dryer snagged my sweater. I have a cold and I didn't sleep well last night. And as you'll remember from episode five, in reality, all of these things are in fact neutral. They just are. But the drama triangle, it propels us to write a story about these neutral circumstances. And more often than not, the story that the drama triangle wants to write about is that of victimization. So, you know, it, it may the story of, oh, my dryer's out to get me, germs are out to get me, even my dog is out to get me, the world is just out to get me. But that's kind of one of the funny things about the victim narrative is every victim needs a villain. And once we identify ourselves as the victim, then that means that we have also judged someone or something outside of us as our persecutor, which means that we ourselves have just become the persecutor. So we're now the one making the accusations, right? We are now the one doing the blaming. We are now the one doing the shaming. We are now ping-ponging between the role of victim and persecutor. And it's just really a super fascinating thing to observe in self. One should become consciously aware of it. We want to remain blameless, right? We want to be the innocent one, which means that we really want everything to be somebody else's fault. But in an effort to make everything somebody else's fault, then number one, we're avoiding accountability, but we're also becoming that persecutor. And then we ourselves are becoming a villain. So it may be the story of, well, it's their fault that my life is so hard. It's their fault I didn't sleep well. It's their fault that I'm all burned out. We're both the victim and the persecutor at the same time. Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in victimhood, it's because we have a need that we're trying to fulfill, and we honestly cannot think of any other way of meeting that need. So, for example, children, they need love and attention and affection. These are basic human needs that everybody needs. And if the child's need for love, attention, and affection are met in the day-to-day life, then ultimately they do learn how to self-soothe and how to self-regulate. And they are very uh, confident and secure adults. It creates the secure attachment with the parents and with other people they have relationship with. And so the parent's attentiveness to their needs, it creates this secure attachment and it minimizes self-victimization in adulthood. So on the other hand, if the child's needs are not met, the child's needs of love, attention, and affection are not met in the day-to-day life, then it kind of skews the future outcome. So maybe the child has gone to school all day where they don't really receive the love, attention, and affection that they need from their parents. And then they come home from school after being separated from their parents all day, but they're left to fend for themselves or play on their own. And their needs continue to be unmet. And this could potentially create an insecure attachment style for the child because they're not quite sure when the parents going to be showing up and when they're not going to. And then let's say that then the child becomes sick one day. So the child is now sick and suddenly mom and dad are attentive. (laughs) Suddenly their parents are easily able to drop everything and give them the nurturing and the caring that they need. They're able to cuddle on the couch and watch their favorite show and they get to eat their favorite kind of soup and their sandwich is cut just the way that they like it and their needs are finally met. But even subconsciously, the child's going to recognize that it took them getting sick in order to get that need for attention, love, and affection to be met. So now that that association has been made, that they must become sick, or in other words, that they must become a victim of circumstances, you know, a victim of these outside forces in order to get their basic needs met, then this may subsequently create more tummy aches and more sick days because the child's subconscious has now been taught that this is the only way to have their basic needs met their childlike mind cannot think of any other way to get their legitimate needs for love and affection met. So I'm not saying if your child gets sick to just, you know, condemn them that, oh, I'm sorry that you're not feeling well. Like it looks like you just, you're playing sick to have your needs met. No, these are legitimate needs that need to be met. So take the time. If you notice your kid is having frequent stomach aches, check in on the days that they're not sick and give them the love and attention and affection on those days, as well as on the days that they are sick, and that's going to help to heal those wounds and help them to create those secure attachments and recognize that they don't have to slip into victimhood in order to get their needs met. But the needs need to be met in both of those places. 100% cuddle and snuggle and all the things with your child when they are sick, and also make a point to do it when they are well. Because if we're taught as children that being a victim of circumstances is the only way to get our needs met, it's going to reinforce our victim narrative. And as a result, even well into adulthood, you know, we tend to think that the only way that we can get that love, attention, or validation is if we have some terrible victim story to tell other people in order to raise the sympathies of others. So in other words, we intentionally become the victim in an effort to trigger the rescuer response in others. We want them to step in and rescue us because we associate it with being cared for and nurtured as a child. We choose to become the victim so that somebody else will rescue us. But that keeps us in emotional childhood because we're continuously putting other people in a situation where we're wanting them to meet our emotional needs rather than finding a way to nurture and parent our own inner child. Now, we've talked about what the victim narrative looks like externally and like engaging with other people. But it's also good to note that sometimes we play out that drama triangle internally as well. So, for example, you know, the New Year's right around the corner and many people set a resolution to work out. So maybe your internal dialogue goes something like this. it is so early. I didn't sleep well at all last night and I just can't get myself motivated to work out today. So there's the victim, right? And then maybe in comes the persecutor. I haven't worked out all week. I am so fat and lazy. And then maybe the rescuer comes in. I think I'll stay in bed and get the rest that I need and work out someday when I'm not so tired. And that's the rescuer. And that's also a form of buffering, which we're going to be talking about when we address the rescuer role in a future episode. But we are in a drama triangle in this case with ourselves and that drama triangle is not getting us the results that we want, right? Obviously we have a resolution to work out because that's something that's important to us is to improve our health. But now we're talking ourselves out of it under the guise of rescuing ourselves (laughs) from a bad night's sleep when really it may help us to get up and work out and show integrity by being true to our word that we said we're going to work out and so that's what we're going to do. So I did tell you that I would offer up a counterpoint to each of these points, right? And so the counterpoint for the victim role is the creator role. And since we learn through contrast, I'm going to kind of just really spell this out, okay? So here's a little compare and contrast for you. And, and I'll be making some visuals to post on social media of these as well. So the victim is passive. The creator is proactive. The victim asks, why is this happening to me? The creator asks, how is this happening for me? The victim looks for someone to blame. The creator takes responsibility. The victim looks for reasons why things are out of their control. The creator proactively looks for ways that things are in their control. The victim is needy and expects others to solve their problem. The creator has needs but is proactive about creatively meeting those needs. The victim looks for what's not going well. The creator looks for things to be grateful for. Now, one absolutely amazing example of this is Corrie Ten Boom. So in the book, The Hiding Place, it talks about her story, and she talks about her experience in a Nazi prison camp. And I will link this book in the show notes as well. It's a fantastic book. And I want to make it clear, too, as we're talking about the victim narrative, that I am not saying at all that there are not actual victims and villains in this world. There are absolutely people that suffer at the hands of others, like Corrie Ten Boom. But not being the victim... It isn't about controlling our circumstances to make sure that we never experience hardship, but rather it's about choosing how we want to think about our experiences. So in the example of Corey Ten Boom, she details how horrific the living conditions were in the barracks of this camp. Their barracks, they stunk so bad, and the beds were absolutely infested with fleas. It was miserable there, and the guards, they wouldn't even step foot into these barracks because Of the stench, and also due to the fear of being infected themselves by these fleas. And she just wasn't sure how she could possibly survive in such a horrible living space. And this is, of course, a very condensed version of her story. Absolutely read the book. But at one point, then she talks about how shocked she was when her sister Betsy said a prayer of gratitude. They'd been reading in their Bible about being grateful in all things. And Betsy said this prayer where she was grateful for many things. And and Corey's like, okay, I can be grateful for that. But then at the end, she said she was even grateful for the fleas. And Corey was somewhat appalled. She said, look, I can be grateful for a lot of things, but really, you want me to be grateful for fleas? Like, I don't know if I can say an amen to that. And then later in the book, she learned about the horrific acts performed by the guards in the other barracks. And she learned that because of those fleas and because of the horrible stench, Not only were they able to study their Bible together without fear of being caught, but they were also safe from the guards. And it was after she had that realization that she too became grateful for the fleas. Corey shifted her mindset to that of a creator. She was choosing to see things that were in her control and intentionally seeking out the things that were working for her rather than against her. So what might happen if rather than listing out our victim story, And then hoping that somebody else would respond with their rescuer energy if we could just leave the drama story out of it and make a simple request. Let me expand just a tiny bit on the passivity of the victim role. Oftentimes, because we want to trigger the rescuer in other people and we don't want to be a burden to other people, then we don't even make a clear request. So instead, we might just say, oh my gosh, it's just so hard and I'm supposed to pick up the kids and I don't know how I'm supposed to do that and get dinner ready and my house is a mess. And then we have an activity tonight and we're just laying on all of the things that we feel are happening to us in the hopes that the other person is going to be like, oh, hey, here, let me help and just step in. But we're doing ourselves a disservice in that we are not articulating our actual needs. And it does sound really overwhelming when somebody just rattles off everything that's going on for them, right? There is a time and a place for that. You know, coaching is a great space for that. I can help you sort through your thoughts. But none of us want to be that friend where every time we get together, all we hear is the victim story. Right. And that's where coaching is helpful is to help us step out of that victim story. But once we become aware of it, then we're able to be more proactive about making a clear request. So, for example, instead of just listing off all the things we have on our list that are overwhelming us, then maybe we could just be direct and say, Hey, would you be able to pick up the kids tonight? That'd be great. You know, making that clear request and just leaving all of the drama out of it and just focusing on what the need is. Or maybe you could even say very clearly and directly, Hey, I could really use some friend time. Are you free for lunch? or making a request, can I have a hug? And this is my personal favorite. Hey, I really need an ear. Can you just listen for 20 minutes and then give me a big hug at the end? (laughs) You know, oftentimes I don't even need feedback. I just need to feel heard and just having a space to just vent for 20 minutes and then I can process it and then get on. You know, I'm very much a verbal processor. It does require developing your own level of self-awareness when you're making these requests to recognize and verbalize what your own needs are. And that can really take some practice to develop that skill. And maybe you aren't there yet, and that's totally okay. Maybe your request could even be, you know what, I don't know what I need right now. But I think having somebody just sit with me for a few minutes while I think out loud might help. So as I said, I'm absolutely a verbal processor. And so, you know, this is totally me. Like, I don't necessarily know what is true for me sometimes until I'm able to say it out loud and see how it feels in my body. And that is why I love coaching so much. It offers a safe space for exactly that, for that verbal processing, where I can share my story, see what things are true and what things are, not have somebody kind of poke holes in my story and help me come up with something more supportive. And I just love it. So I want to give a special shout out to my coaches and tell them, thank you. You ladies are amazing. And I really appreciate you. So even making comments as well, like, you know what, I'm not sure what I need. But I do know that I'm feeling angry and resentful and confused right now. So I think maybe just feeling into that for a moment might help to bring some insight into the story I'm telling myself. Now, can you see how saying something like that is going to remove the drama? I'm not accusing anybody. I'm being responsible for my feelings. I'm owning, hey, I'm feeling angry and resentful and confused right now. And I need some space to kind of sort through that and see what's coming up for me. I'm very much into the Myers-Briggs personality test. And so I do think that some people are primarily thinkers and some people are primarily feelers. So oftentimes I'll have the emotion come up and then my brain tries to fill in the gaps for why I feel that way. And I know for other people, then it's very much a thought and then they'll experience the emotion in their body and just noticing, okay, so do I need to, is this a thought that I need to focus on to figure out my feeling or is this a feeling and I need to figure out my thought? Uh, But just allowing space for that can bring so much clarity and healing. So notice where your victim energy is showing up. So maybe it's around a perceived imbalance in home duties. Maybe you're upset that you got cut off in traffic. Maybe it's a really slow cashier. Maybe it's that you got sick over the holidays. Or maybe it's around somebody else having something that you would like, and you're disappointed that you don't have the thing that they have. We all play into this role every single day. But practice kind of just noticing it and intentionally choosing into the creator role by asking more supportive questions by looking for ways that things are working for you rather than against you, and by intentionally seeking out things to be grateful for. It is so worth the effort. Just a little side note, I recently saw a video clip of Brene Brown that I found just fascinating. But she asked the question, she said, you wanna know what emotion humans have the hardest time feeling? And she said, it's the feeling of joy. She said that oftentimes because we're stuck, I mean, these are gonna be my words, not hers, but essentially because we're stuck and, and we've been conditioned to be in victimhood. We find ourselves always waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I, I'm not going to experience the joy because I, I, I just know it's not going to stay. So I'm just going to stay miserable. So essentially, we're choosing to be miserable ahead of time and refusing or resisting, rather, experiencing joy. She talked about one man that she was working with that that was kind of his mentality was, you know, he was just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then his wife died. And he realized how much he had been resisting joy in his life, but also how much he had been muting joy in his shared experiences with his wife because of that mentality. And that was his biggest regret, was not allowing more space for joy in that relationship. So I encourage you this week, become aware of and step out of victimhood and become a conscious creator of joy. It is totally within your power. So just a reminder, this is a three-part series, so make sure that you are subscribed so you can hear my episode on the perpetrator as well as the rescuer roles. It's really interesting to see how all of these play together. And while you're subscribing, please leave me a review. It really does help to grow our amazing community and just increase the reach. It's just so much fun. I love it. I love, love, love what I do. So I hope you have a very happy new year and I'll talk to you soon. Bye now.